I didn't grow up in the church. Um, I think my family went to church when I was a little kid, but not regularly, and I don't remember much about it. Um, I do remember once I had to have been like three, three years old. I had a quarter for the offering, and I dropped it in the snow. And this was in Amarillo, Texas, and the snow was deep. And I remember being pretty distressed that I lost my offering. That's about my only church memory as a child. Um, my journey with Jesus didn't begin, at least from my perspective, until I was 13 years old. On April 29th, 1989, in Kerrville, Texas. I was in Kerrville, several hours from home, to attend the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Weekend of Champions. FCA was and still is an interdenominational and international parachurch ministry that uses sports, athletes, and coaches to impact the world for Jesus Christ. Um, young people from middle schools and high schools all over the state gathered that weekend in Kerrville to hear about Jesus and to play sports. The guest speaker that weekend was a man by the name of Kyle Rote Jr. If you've ever heard of him, I'm very impressed. He was a professional soccer player um, turned evangelist. I had never heard of him. And I'm a soccer fan. Um, but he was a little before my time. So maybe some folks a little bit older might know who he is. I'm sure he preached the message of salvation, that Jesus had died for us, that we needed to make a decision to follow him, to ask him into our hearts. But, you know, I had heard all of that before. Because even though I didn't grow up in church, I grew up in Texas, which is almost a church in and of itself. Amen. <laughs> this means that I knew a lot of Jesus. I was in Christian daycare for four years. I went to vacation Bible school every time I could. Now I know my parents were just getting me out of the house. Um, almost endless church events with friends. I knew a lot about Jesus. In fact, I'd gone through um, these services where a guest speaker comes in, preaches the gospel, and asks if you want to respond and ask Jesus to your heart to into your heart to raise your hand. I had done that, but then they trick you because this is like every head bowed, every eye closed. Raise your hand if you want to ask Jesus to your heart. Yeah, as long as no one knows about it, I'm all for it. And then they would a little bit of a bait and switch, then we would have to stand up or walk forward. I didn't want any part of that. But for several, several reasons, um, to which I might speak at some other time, I made a decision on that, eve that night to follow Jesus. And so did about 20 other friends and classmates, just from my school. After the service, everyone from our group who had made a decision for Jesus met in a room and our sponsor, Coach Jones, in tears, clarified to all of us what had just happened and expressed his joy at what was going on. In fact, I would say that I was responding largely to the ministry, to the efforts of Coach Jones, rather than Kyle Rote Jr. As Coach Jones, week in and week out, delivered the message of God's kingdom to an arrogant and annoying seventh grade boy like me full of all the struggles of a typical seventh grade boy. So 20 young people from one small town, classmates, all responding to the call of God to come and take over their lives 
to the message that Jesus had died in our place for our sins, it just doesn't get much better than that. Or so I thought. What I learned over the next several years was that these kinds of decisions, these kinds of results were quite typical in my Christian subculture. Weekend retreats, church camps, large Christian gatherings, all of these produced dozens of decisions to follow Jesus each and every time. It was quite predictable. Then I started noticing that often the same kids made the same decisions at different events just weeks or months apart. It didn't take me long to observe that for many, if not most, of my friends and classmates, decisions made in this manner were somewhat superficial and often short-lived. Some fell away as soon as they returned home. Some hung on for weeks or months, some maybe even for a few years, and some, maybe just a few of those 20, are still following Jesus. Why? Why does the decision seem to stick with some, often few, but not with many, not with most? Because even when the message is right and right on, and when the preacher has prayed and studied why are the responses not consistent? And if we knew why, what would we do about it? What would we do with that information? Jesus, his disciples, and the early church, I don't think they would recognize much of what goes on today in Christian ministry. And I don't think it's that big of a deal. But I think they would recognize this issue of the word of God his good news for us of his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, taking root and producing fruit, much in some, but none in many. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day after Jesus went out of the house, he sat by a lake and such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat to sit while the whole crowd stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, for they did not have much soil. They sprang up quickly because the soil was not deep. But when the sun came up, they were scorched, and because they did not have sufficient root, they withered. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and they grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred times as much, some sixty, and some thirty. The one who has ears had better listen. Verse 10, Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He replied, You have been given the opportunity to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but they have not. For whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. For this reason, I speak to them in parables. Although they see, they do not see. Although they hear, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And concerning them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will listen carefully, yet will never understand. You will look closely, yet will never comprehend. For the heart of this people has become dull. 
They are hard of hearing. They have shut their eyes so that they would not see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But your eyes are blessed because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. So, listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed sown on rocky ground is the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself and does not endure. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. The seed sown among the thorns is the person who hears the word, but worldly cares and the seductiveness of wealth choke the word, so it produces nothing. But as for the seed sown on good soil, this is the person who hears the word and understands. He bears fruit, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This parable presents several challenges. The first concerns its meaning. The second concerns its application. And I'm going to tackle those two issues in that order. My hope is that along the way, You'll be encouraged where encouragement will draw you closer to Christ and to the work of his kingdom and that you will be challenged, even made uncomfortable where being challenged and being made uncomfortable will draw you closer to him and to the work of his kingdom. So what does the parable mean? By this question, most of us are asking about the soils and this is a good and important question. Jesus himself interprets this parable for us, only one of two times that Jesus gives us an interpretation. But even with his interpretation, many of our questions remain. About the first and the last soil, there's not much debate. The path and the good soil. The seed that falls on the path is snatched up by the evil one. It never takes root, never emerges from the ground. The seed that falls on good soil produces different amounts, but produces nonetheless. In fact, it's only the seed and soil combination that produces any fruit at all. A fact which I believe is the key, because in this parable, the fruit is what matters. The confusion and the debate concerns the rocky and the thorny soil. Are these descriptions of followers of Jesus, those who are saved, to use our terminology, but who struggle? Maybe they're immature, or perhaps they go through um, stages of their life where um, they're far away from Jesus. Or maybe it's a description of the stages of the Christian life for some. Or are these descriptions of those who hear about God's kingdom but fall away? Are they descriptions of those who, despite having some initial positive response to the message, they neither endure nor produce fruit, and that this is evidence that they were never truly disciples of Jesus? Um, if you read about this parable, you'll see this. People want to know, are these like worldly Christians or carnal Christians, but still Christians, or are they Christians who were never, or are they people who were never really Christians anyway? Or were they truly followers of Jesus Christ, 
and they fell away. And it raises the question, can we lose our salvation? But that's not the point of this parable. And I don't think this parable answers that question. I think we can get some answers to those types of questions in other places, but not from this parable. The point of the parable, if we're just looking at the soils, is that only one produces fruit. And I'd really love to spend more time on the soils. So much can be said about the role that things like persecution, wealth, worldly cares, what role they play in the response of so many to the message that we preach. But I think focusing on the soils can cause us to miss the bigger point. In fact, many use the soils of this parable as a guide or a means of self-assessment. Well-meaning, well-meaning preachers ask, which soil are you? Not a bad question, but it's not a question the parable is asking. It's not a point the parable is making. So I want you to notice a very small detail in Matthew's account of this parable. In verse 18, Jesus calls this parable the parable of the sower. You probably have that title somewhere in your Bible, and most of you know um, that those section headings are done by the publishers, not by the authors. In fact, this might be the only time we have Jesus naming a parable. Jesus himself calls this the parable of the sower, and he does it as he begins to explain it to his disciples. So the fact that he calls it the parable of the sower and that he does so when explaining it to his disciples should get our attention. When we turn this parable into a question about which soil we are, or into endless debates about the rocky and thorny soils, we forget about the sower. So we're not going to make that mistake this morning. So I want to talk about the sower. The sower is the one spreading the message about God's kingdom. That following Jesus and pledging our allegiance, our loyalty to him and him alone, demands all of us because he gave all of himself to us and for us. Clearly at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is the sower. Why does he explain it to his disciples in this manner? I think because they will become sowers. Or to use a different image that they had already heard from Jesus, they will become fishers of men and women. As they spread the same message, both during Jesus' ministry, but especially after his departure through the power of the Holy Spirit, If this were all about the soils instead, let's look at the 12 disciples. We know that 11 of them are good soil. Judas is maybe the third soil. There's some, you know, debate about that. But if the point is about the soils, then the application for the disciples, and ultimately for us, would be very limited. The point I think Jesus is making here is quite simple and straightforward. And it's about the sower. The sower spreads the seed broadly with no regard for the nature of the soil. Responses vary according to the soil, but the sowing varies not. It is wide and it is broad. 
So to summarize up to this point, as we're asking what this parable means, this parable means that the response to the message of God's kingdom depends on the soil, that the production of fruit is what identifies the good soil, and ultimately that it's the sower who spreads the seed broadly. So I think that's what it means. Now, what does this mean for us? First of all, and primarily, I believe that Jesus is telling his disciples and he is telling us to spread the message broadly. Evangelism and outreach in the church today has fallen to the enemy of efficiency. We spend a lot of time and resources probing the soils, taking core samples to see which one will produce the most fruit. As good American capitalists, we are looking for a solid return on our investment. Our target audience tends to be those who will be a good fit in our churches, those who look like us, vote like us, live in homes like ours, so on and so forth. But Jesus is telling us to sow broadly. You know, one of the pieces of background information that informs this point of the parable is that in many places in Israel, in many fields in ancient times, you can't tell the good soil from the rocky or the thorny soil by looking. When we think of rocky soil, I remember uh, like Little House in the Prairie where Charles Ingalls goes to clear the field and there are all these rocks, fairly large, some bigger than others, and he's got a, you know, uses this like lever to get the big rocks out of the way and he clears the field. That's not what the rocky soil is in this context. In this area of Israel, rocky soil would have meant a very thin layer of topsoil with limestone bedrock underneath. So just by looking, you can't tell. What about the thorny soil? What farmer in his right mind would throw seeds on a bush of thorns? But yet, there's another detail here. We're told that the thorns grow along with the crops, along with the plant, along with the seed. That says to me that the thorns are also invisible at first. And as everything grows, it becomes obvious that that was a thorny area. So you can't tell by looking as hard as you try. So we sow broadly. Second, Jesus is telling us to sow repeatedly. Whether or not our sowing produces fruit, it takes time. The production of fruit in the life of a Christian is not an immediate process. It's oftentimes not very efficient. And we might not be around to see its production. So it takes time. Also, the emergence of shoots doesn't mean our work is finished. 
We must continue spreading the message about his kingdom with patience and with perseverance, knowing that the production of fruit is in many ways out of our control. We sow broadly because we never know. We sow repeatedly because we never know. Finally, what does this passage say to us who have responded? There's a pretty obvious application here for evangelism, for spreading the message. But what about us, though? What about those of us who have responded? Does it say anything to us? And I think it does. We should be driven to thanksgiving to God and to his faithful servants for spreading his message broadly and repeatedly. I don't want to ask, but I'm pretty sure if I did, no one would look back on our lives at the point when we received that seed and say about ourselves, oh, I was definitely great soil. And there was never any doubt that the fruit would be produced. As far as I can tell, I was rocky soil at best. Coach Jones, however, spread broadly, and he spread repeatedly. You know what happens to rocks over the years? They break down into soil. The rocks become a component of the soil. So maybe my rocky heart was broken down until I was ready, until I could receive, understand, and respond to the message of God's kingdom. I don't know. I do know this. We're pretty poor appraisers of our own hearts. So I want you to think, who looked at you? Who sowed broadly and repeatedly into your life? without trying to figure out what kind of soil you were ahead of time? Who spread the message of God's kingdom broadly and repeatedly until one little seed took root and found room and nourishment to grow? We need to thank these people and thank God for these people. I actually had an opportunity. I found Coach Jones on Facebook about a year or so ago and just sent him a message. He's now a Um, He's a pastor in Florida. Um, I wouldn't mind being a pastor in Florida. (laughs) Sounds lovely sometimes. But uh, he's he's a a pastor at at a Presbyterian church in Florida. And and we had a nice little chat. And I think after this message sometime in the next few weeks, I'll get a hold of him again. A few years ago, I came across a picture. I think I have it in our green box of important stuff. Um, from from uh, from my school group that weekend in 1989. In fact, we were staying with friends this summer in Dallas, and they had a copy of the picture. And my kids saw 13-year-old Curtis. I don't like my picture being taken now very much, um, but I'd rather you see me now than as a 13-year-old. Um, <laughs> but my kids saw it and made fun of me. I look at this picture. I see a man, old to me then, but much younger than I am now, who sowed broadly and sowed repeatedly. I see others, 
some whom I still know who are continuing to grow and to produce fruit. I see others who have fallen away. Whether they were ever true followers of Jesus or not doesn't seem to be any of my business. They're not now. What is my business? Given to me by Jesus Christ is to keep sowing broadly, repeatedly, because I never know. Maybe bad soil becomes good over time. Maybe I'm pretty terrible at guessing soil conditions to begin with. But my task is to follow those who have followed Jesus in sowing broadly and repeatedly. I need your help in doing this. And maybe someone needs mine. Uh, do know that we're all in this together. <coughs> so would you pray with me to that end? Lord, there's so much uh, in this parable that you have given us through your inspired word that, that I didn't get to address this morning. But I pray, Lord, that what was true, what is helpful, what was challenging and encouraging would stick with us. Uh, it, it's, I don't know what to say, but to, to, to thank you. Um, when I, I try to imagine where I would be if someone had not sown broadly and repeatedly the message of your kingdom, uh, I wouldn't be here today. And many of us could say the same thing. I pray, Lord, that this message would encourage us that, uh, that uh, you are in control and that you are faithful and that as we grow and produce fruit, that that, that is a testimony to you, not of our ability, not of our intelligence or, or talents, but of your faithfulness and of your grace and of your mercy in our lives. Lord, make us like the sower, not trying to figure out ahead of time what kind of production is going to occur, but to spread the seed broadly and repeatedly over and over again. Help us to do that in ways that are winsome and creative and challenging, that we're not following formulas or scripts, but that your spirit through us would speak to those around us that as that seed falls in the soil we would be there ready to help it grow to provide the care and the nourishment that it requires that you would recognize our fruit Lord and we need your help in this we need each other in this this is not something we can do alone or something we can do apart from you I pray that through, throughout this week that you would remind us to look for opportunities to spread broadly and to spread repeatedly the seed of the message of your kingdom. Thank you in advance for all that you'll do. May we give you the glory. Amen.